first of all, I'd like to say we, we have really enjoyed being here. We, we've been around, you know, Brother Ron and, and Brother Lee and, and people from Cornerstone often over the past several months. And, and we've just heard all these wonderful stories about this place and have never been able to, to come by. And I have to say that all that we've heard is true. It has been a wonderful blessing. The mission school was excellent and challenging. And, and so uh, we, we just want to thank you and tell you that we appreciate it. <clears throat> now, my wife and I are from the Bible Baptist Church in Deland, Florida. And we <laughs> we're from the Bible Baptist Church in Deland, Florida. And we are on our way to Uganda, uh, Africa. And we'll also be working in Rwanda, Africa. Now, the, this, this whole process has been an unbelievable blessing. Uh, the, the way it's all kind of come to fruition, the way it's all kind of worked out. And, and so typically when I go places, what I try and do is do my best to explain to you through my testimony how I came to be standing in front of you today. And um, it, it's, a, it's a long process. It, there's a lot of information. We're going to go through it quickly. The last time I said I was going through 37 years of information, Brother Ron stood up and said he was going to go through 6,000 years of information <laughs> and uh, preached a message from the Bible in that regard. So, um, so just hold on. It's, it's, hopefully it's not boring to you. It's, it's, hopefully it's interesting. And hopefully it'll, sh- it'll show you how God has worked in our lives to, to kind of direct us to where we are today. I'm, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. My mom was 16 years old and homeless when she gave birth to me. During the birth process, she nearly died. As a, as a little girl, she couldn't handle, she couldn't handle what, what she was being put through. Now, doctors were about to have to make a decision. One of us wasn't going to come out of that room. One of us was not going to make it. And praise the Lord, before that happened, she did give birth to me, but I was stillborn. I came out with no heartbeat, no life in me whatsoever. Now, the Lord saw fit, obviously, to revive my life and, and, and restore me. And so here I am today. But... <clears throat> Uh, my mom is, is a wonderful woman. She is a, a strong woman. She did the best she could with what she knew, knew how to do. But being 16 years old and pregnant is not an honorable thing. It's not noble. It's not helpful. Starting a family against the will of God and against the word of God is inviting a lot of trouble into your life. Yes. <clears throat> so I, I would advise you not to do that. And my mother would advise you not to do that. Right. Now, she tells people that we grew up together. We grew up in Memphis. Memphis is one of the most, consistently one of the most violent cities in America. By the time I was 14, my stepdad had three gunfights in our house. <laughs> not, not out in the streets, not, you know, in the house. Um, and so growing up that way, my, my mom, before my mom and stepdad were together, she dated a few men that were extremely violent. They would, they would beat her in front of us. They did horrendous things that really wouldn't be great to talk about from here. And, and we had to watch it all. And so Growing up in a city like that, under those conditions, I, I came to be a pretty violent and angry young man. And I was in a lot of trouble. I was headed for a lot of trouble. And to escape that, to get away from that, I joined the United States Air Force. And that helped me to, to, to get away from the rebellious and the bad city and, and all that I had, had come to love there and be a part of. And so I went from being an angry and violent young man to being a military-trained angry and violent young man. Yeah. <laughs> Joining the military can help you, but it's not the solution. And so I was in the Air Force for, for three years. I had a terrible accident, ended up tearing, tearing my shoulder up. I tore, tore the whole left side of my face up. And, and uh, the Air Force was under force reduction at this point in time. And I was a prime target to go from being Airman Irvin to Mr. Irvin. <laughs> I, I was under an extended profile. They had to do surgeries on my shoulder and all sorts of things were going on. So, so they felt it was best for, mutually for both of us to just put me out of the Air Force. 
So I became a civilian in 2005. In 2006, I got my first opportunity to work overseas. Uh, a company from Saudi Arabia called and asked if I would come, come work as a defense contractor. And I would spend the next seven to seven and a half years working in various places throughout the Middle East, training foreign militaries how to work weapon systems on fighter jets. While I was in Saudi Arabia, something very interesting happened. Um, in 2010, I met an American family that had given up U.S. citizenship so they could live in Saudi Arabia. They thought they were moving to this great Islamic utopia in the desert. And they found out pretty quickly that was a, that was a terrible idea. And they found out it wasn't quite the utopia they hoped it would be. And they began to ask me, and I have no idea why you would ask me, but they began to ask me, how does a person become a Christian? Now, the only reason I could think of that, that they would ask me that, because my life in no way resembled Christianity whatsoever. I was, for all intents and purposes, a, a, just a reprobate. And the reason they would ask that is because I was part of this southern phenomenon where you just assume you are a Christian. And they asked me if I was a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. What else would we be? <laughs> Of course, today, Memphis is being called the new Mecca for Islam in the United States of America. So that'll change here pretty soon. So of course I'm Muslim. I'm from Memphis. What else would I be? But, of course, that was a false assumption. And, and, and if, you really, if you really consider that line of thinking, and you think about what you're saying, the gospel of the grace of God is the result of eternal deliberation by an all-wise God. Trying to figure out how to save your soul, how to separate you from hell and, and reconcile you to himself. Yes. Except for people below the Mason-Dixon line. They don't need it. <laughs> that's not a good way. That's, that's, a, that's a false assumption. That's a terrible thought. Yes. That flies in the face of God and what he had to do in order to accomplish eternal redemption on your part. Yes. And so, of course, I didn't know that at the time, but that question really messed me up. I didn't know what to do with that question. It never occurred to me up until that point that you had to become a Christian. Again, I I just assumed I was one. And so I I went back home and and with that in my heart and and I couldn't leave it alone. I couldn't put it down. The Lord was really convicting me. And so I I found my Bible and blew the dust off of it. And I would I opened it up and would start to read it. And I would read Romans five verses one through six. I'd read it repeatedly. I don't know how I came to that passage. I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know the, where I got the, the, the idea to go to that passage. But I, I'm in Saudi Arabia making $140,000 a year, traveling all over the world. I have everything everybody says they want. Success, money, whatever. And I'm just as miserable and empty and angry as can be. Absolutely nothing has changed inside. And I'm happy as long as I have another paycheck to go and buy some more happiness. But it's just continually fleeting. It's just continually empty. It's just shallow. There's absolutely no, no substance to it whatsoever. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I would read that and I, I'm, I wanted to know, how do I have peace with God? How do you glory through tribulation? How, how do you have the love of God shed abroad in your heart? How do you have access to all this? Now, when those people asked me, how do you become a Christian? I knew the answer. And I told them, you have to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, they asked me, oh, is that, is that what you did? <laughs> I was like, well, I got to think about this. I don't know. I had two very godly great-grandmothers that, that loved Jesus Christ and did their best to impress upon their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren their responsibility to God. And it seemingly fell on deaf ears until that day. 
Then it began to be stirred up in my heart. And I, I knew the answer, but I, I'd come to realize that I had never done that. I had ne- there had never been a point in which I said, I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of my, of my soul. And so I began to read that, and, and, and I was struggling with it, and, and I really had a hard time with it because for two primary reasons. Number one, I didn't know what was going to happen after that. I, I didn't know if the earth was going to quake or if an angel was going to pop up in the room or if it was going to fill with light. I, I, all I could think of was some massive religious experience, and I didn't know what, what was going to happen next. And not only that, but secondly, I now have 29 years worth of baggage that I cannot, that I understood, I cannot bring with me into the Christian life. 29 years worth of lifestyle, worth of language, worth of relationships, places I go, things I do, that I had an understanding if I make this decision and I trust in Jesus Christ, I can't bring this with me into the Christian life. And so... I really struggled with it and needed some help, needed some guidance, but I'm sitting in the middle of Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Can't exactly run to church or go talk to a pastor. And so I did the only thing an intelligent American in 2010 could do. I went to YouTube. (laughs) And the only person I knew of on YouTube that I felt like I could trust was Adrian Rogers. I'm from Memphis. He pastored in Memphis a long time. And he had a sermon on YouTube called The Simplicity of Salvation. And I would come home every night from work and I would sit there and watch that sermon over and over and over. And Adrian Rogers had a way of making things incredibly simple and incredibly clear. And I, I, could, I can hear him in my head now saying, K-N-O-W, you can know <laughs> from 1 John 5. And after watching that and struggling with that for about two weeks, it was very clear what I needed to do. I really had no excuse at this point. At this point, it was a decision. Are you going to give up the baggage and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you going to just continue in your sin? And so at the end of that two week period, I bowed my head and I called out to the Lord for for salvation. And my life made a drastic turn in a different direction that day. And I remember driving, you know, driving in the Middle East can be somewhat frustrating. (laughs) And I remember driving and noticing that I didn't care. For the first time ever, I didn't want to get out and choke somebody. (laughs) Just little things that the Lord did that I, that I noticed that there, there was a change in my life. The angel didn't pop up. The earth didn't quake. None of that happened, but, but lots of things did change. And, and lots of it changed immediately. And I had, I had about two months left on my contract in Saudi Arabia. And um, I, I, I didn't want to sign a follow-on contract. I, I wanted to go home. I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to go to church. I just want to be around God's people. I want somebody to tell me about the Bible. I'm reading all this stuff. and I have no idea what it means. And I just want somebody to help me. And so I give up my contract, I go home, and I go to church, and we're having a blues concert in the auditorium that Sunday. And people are standing up and showing off, you know, their Jesus tattoos, and and all these things are going on, and I'm like, well, well, you know, I'm brand new here. I, I don't, you know, maybe this is what it's supposed to be like, but it just doesn't seem right to me. And it's not what my great-grandmothers used to take me to. And it's, I don't think they would come and sit and listen to this. And I think they'd really have a problem with this. And, um, but I, I was careful about criticism, because, which is rare in my life. And so, um, but because I was new here and had no idea what I was doing. I'm trying to figure this out. Now, there, during this time in my life and, and during my time in Saudi Arabia, um, I, I trained heavily in mixed martial arts. Um, I... I, I learned three, three different martial arts and got involved in, in uh, sport fighting, 
which eventually turned into mixed martial arts and, and fighting in that arena and, and cage fighting and, and all that great stuff. And so I had an opportunity. I had I'd gotten noticed by some men in New York and I had an opportunity to move up to Long Island, New York to train for, for a fight. I, I would have been, it was an opportunity to win a professional contract. So I packed up from Memphis and I moved up to Long Island, New York, and I'm getting ready for training camp and getting ready for all the, all the things that that entails. And um, while I was there, of course, I wanted to find a church. Well, incidentally, praise the Lord, I found an independent, fundamental, King James, Bible-believing Baptist church in Long Island, New York. And they greatly helped me early on in my Christian life. The, the pastor there was a man that was the first man ever that really took interest in my life and sat down with me and showed me some things from the Bible. And it was a tremendous help, and, and, and I, I, I loved it. And so it's time for training camp, and I get ready to go to train, and I walk into the gym, and the music I just got rid of, they're blasting it on the speakers. The language I just got rid of, that's how they talk. The places they go, the things they do, all that baggage I knew I couldn't bring with me into the Christian life, I'm walking right back into it right now. And then I began to struggle with some ideas. My next two fights are in Atlantic City at the casinos, sponsored by Bud Light and a number of other items that wouldn't be proper to talk about from the pulpit. And then I couldn't reconcile standing in, front of, standing, standing in, a, in a cage after beating somebody's face in and thanking God for giving me the ability to do that to him before he did it to me. <laughs> it just was not flowing well with the Christian life, and, and I really wanted to take it serious. I, I, I was... I was, I was taken back by what Jesus Christ had done for me. And I, I, I just couldn't see this fitting and, and being a good representation of Jesus Christ. So I exchanged training in martial arts for standing in front of Walmart, passing out tracks. Amen. I, I wanted to talk, tell people about Jesus Christ, but I was far too aggressive for that at this point in time and really didn't know what I was doing. So the pastor showed me this, this closet with boxes full of pieces of paper on it that will tell you about Jesus Christ. And I would just stand there for hours and just, I would fill, fill those boxes in my trunk and I'd go stand in front of a store and I'd, as long as they didn't ask me to leave, I'd just stand there and pass out tracks. If somebody asked me a question, I'd have no idea what to tell them. And it probably wouldn't be good if they asked me a question, but I, I could give them that piece of paper and just read that. There's a website on it. Go, go, you know, just do that. <laughs> and living in Long Island, I'm not fighting anymore, so I don't have sponsorship anymore. All the money I had saved up from Saudi Arabia is running out. Long Island is very expensive. And um, it was coming to a point where I'm, I'm going to have to do something. I need to find a job or I'm not going to be able to stay here. I, I can't sustain myself. And so I began looking for work. And, um, and uh, you know, my background is loading bombs on fighter jets. There's not exactly a ton of just, not exactly a lot of that available in Long Island, New York. So... It wasn't working out. I could not find a job. But the company I worked for in Saudi Arabia called me at this time and said, we're starting a new project in Egypt, and we'd really like you to come help head it up if you're interested. And I said, sure, but my life is very different now. I'm a Christian now, and I'm not going to leave a Bible-believing church where I have some help. I've been saved about a year at this point, and take off across the world where I'm just going to be by myself. I've got to find some Christians there I can fellowship with. And she said, well, we really don't care about that. When you figure that out, you call us back. And so I started calling missionaries in Egypt and emailing them. Not one missionary returned my phone call. Not one missionary returned my emails. And this was during the Egyptian revolution. So I'm sure many of them had left the country or didn't want to admit they were there if they were there. And so I, I, I 
I promised the Lord I wouldn't go if I couldn't find someone that could help continue to teach me and keep me grounded in the Word of God. And so I was going to move back to Memphis. Well, it was just about as hard to find a church in Memphis as it was in Egypt. And so as I was looking at their websites, there was a a church that had a missionary that was an Egyptian man that they supported in, in Cairo, Egypt. So I got his number and called him and he answered the phone, praise the Lord, and we had a great conversation. And I told him what I was trying to accomplish and he said, oh, well, there's an American missionary here, I'll give you his number. He gave me the phone number of a man named David Gates, who was in Egypt for about 10 years, who is a, a wonderful brother, a great missionary, and ended up being incredibly influential early on. I spent the second year of my Christian life with a missionary preaching the, the, the gospel to Muslims in the streets of Cairo. And it gave me a taste of something I couldn't get rid of. I absolutely loved it. And, and just I saw that as, man, that is what I want to spend my life doing. That, that's what we should be doing in my mind. And so before I took off to Egypt, I had to go to Virginia Beach for two weeks of training. While I was in Virginia Beach, I wanted to go to church. And I found uh, Bible Believers Baptist Church with Pastor Tim McDonald right outside the Naval Air Station where I had to go do some training there. And I went to church there and he did something I'd never seen before in my life. He preached line by line, verse by verse, word by word through the word of God. I thought it was the most incredible thing. It was so refreshing and so helpful. And, and, and it was so interesting to follow along and to, and to see where all this goes. And, and, and it, it, it was exciting. And so he and I stayed after church one night and we talked for two or three hours. And he gave me a book and a CD by a man named James Knox. That man is now my pastor. Amen. That, that CD, it was his Bible school course, How to Study and Teach the Bible. And at the time, I was really trying to grasp how to approach this book, how to learn this book, how to understand this book. And I was blown away at, at the God-given ability that man had to teach the Bible. I had never heard anything like it before in my life. It, it, it was exciting to listen to. And he taught me through that course, I could put 100% confidence in this book. Yeah that I could stake my entire life and my eternity on this book and that I could trust it and that God would teach me what my, what my responsibilities are to him through this book, not through a religion or, or I mean, you, you know all that. And so um, I, I needed to find out more about this guy. And so while I was in Egypt, I looked him up and began to listen to him more and more online and, and, um, and would just sit there and it, it would take me two days to, to download one sermon <laughs> sitting in the middle of the desert in Ismailia, Egypt. And I would sit there and just devour those sermons and study them and absolutely love them. And so um, I had time for an, oppor- an opportunity for um, vacation. So I took off to, to DeLand, Florida to go meet him, to go meet Brother James, to see the church and find out more about the Bible school. And he was there and got there. And I was all excited. I was like, man, I'm going to get to hear him preach in person. And Tommy Balkum was there, a missionary up in Canada. And Brother James looked at him and says, want to preach tonight? I was like, what? Amen. <laughs> so we did stay after church that night and we talked for, for, for a good hour, hour and a half. And, and it was a blessing. And, I, and so I knew at that point in time, when my contract came to an end in Egypt, I was moving to Deland, Florida. And so in August of 2012, I packed up and moved to Florida. I hate Florida. It's hot. Brother James says the sky sweats in Florida. It's just... Somebody said, imagine taking a shower, then get out of the shower and put your clothes on. That's living. That's what it's like to live in Florida. (laughs) Don't dry off. Just put your clothes on and you'll be drenched. And so, but while I was there, I met, I met my wife 
and I have a wonderful, wonderful wife. She grew up in that church. I was there for about a year when I had one last opportunity to take one last contract, and uh, I took off to, to Afghanistan, and I, I was at Camp Leatherneck in Afghanistan. While I was in Camp Leatherneck, they would open the chapel to me every Saturday and let me teach the Bible to anybody that wanted to come. And every week, six to 12 men came consistently. Uh, others came here and there, but six to 12 men came every single week, and every one of them was from Uganda, Africa. And so they had the typical fouled up African doctrine you would expect. But when I would sit down and show them what the Bible says about whatever it was they were hung up on, they would get so excited and they would do something. They would do something incredible. They would repent and believe the Bible. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to see that somewhere? I mean, that <laughs> and so I, I was I was just I was, this is this is incredible. People that actually want to hear what you have to say and, and then will, might actually even do it after you show them what it says. I, I thought it was great. And so so. It really started. It really started to burden my heart, and I bought tickets to go there, and and I had a vacation set up. These guys had called back home. They had it set up. I was going to preach twice a day, every day for two weeks straight. I had all the sermons prepared. I was I was so I was ready, and then we got the announcement that Obama's shutting down the war in Afghanistan. Everybody's going home. Cancel your vacation. Well, I guess the Lord didn't want me there, so going back home. I went back to Florida and I got back in Bible school. I got back in the ministries. So we, we just have a, a, new, a number of ministries to just jump in and participate in and get a wide range of ministerial experience if you want it. And so Kristen and I did that. We, I, we both were, she was away at college uh, before I left to go to Afghanistan. By the time we got back, we were both back there. Um, and on September 1st, 2014, Kristen and I got married. And every night for dinner, we would come home and we would pull up, we'd sit in front of the computer, we'd pull up Google Maps and we would just search different cities and different countries around the world. And then we'd look to see if God had a missionary there. And we'd read their prayer letters and we'd watch their videos and we would just sit there and just, just try to find out what's going on around the world. And we really wanted to be somewhere where there were not a lot of missionaries, where God could really use us. And we were praying and asking God, would you show us where you want us to go? Would you show us what you want us to do? And during that time, one of the guys that were, the, the Ugandans that were with me in Afghanistan sent me an email and he said that um, there was some land for sale in a series of islands in Uganda. I said, well, I've got some oceanfront property in Montana if you want to make a trade. <laughs> I think I've seen these emails. Usually they come from Nigeria. What are you doing sending them out? And so, <clears throat> um, but I, I trusted him. I knew, I knew he wasn't trying to mislead me. So I, I didn't know Uganda had islands. And I started looking into it and found out that Lake Victoria is so vast. There are 84 islands in the northern part of that lake. 42 of them are inhabited. One has electricity and running water. They have 14 schools for 42 islands. Seven are on one island. (laughs) Nobody wants to go out there. There are no missionaries out there. And some people take trips out there from time to time, but nobody wants to work consistently out there because it's hard enough going to Africa. It's even harder going out somewhere like that. So in 2016, Kristen and I uh, took off and and we, we had started talking to Brother James about this and praying about it and and it began to become a concept that we were forming and, and thinking about and praying about and making plans for. And, and, um, and so we, we, we flew over there in 2016, in September of 2016, and we stayed there for just under a month. And um, we stayed in Kampala for a while and did a lot of ministry there. Went to Masaka, where Brother Keith Stensis is. He's someone that's been vital in all this. Uh, he's a second-generation missionary in, in Uganda and has been there for about 25 years now. 
and has offered us an opportunity to come and start off working with him, which is a, an incredible opportunity and a, just a wonderful, wonderful way for us to get started under the guidance of someone that knows what they're doing and what they're talking about. And so while we were there, we stayed a, a week in Kampala, a week in Masaka, and a couple of weeks in that tent out on the islands, on, on Bunyama Island in, in the Sese Islands. And we absolutely loved it. It, it was wonderful. Those people are sweet and kind, and, and they have a zeal of God, but definitely not according to knowledge. And, and, um, but but they, they want someone to come and teach them, and they want someone to come and show them. And while we were there in Bunyama, we, we had a church service. About 30 people came, and, and out of 30 people, 10 people made professions of faith in Jesus Christ, which is wonderful. But then we left, and that's it. They have no church to go to. They have nobody there that could teach them the Bible. They have nobody there that could spend time with them. They, they're, just, they're, on their, they're saved, praise the Lord, if, they, if their profession of faith was, was real. But that's it. They're just saved. They, know, they go no further than that. And we, we'd really like to reconcile that and, and really like to be the ones to, to help that. And so we, we, we absolutely loved it. Came back home. And not long after that, our church had a youth rally. And a man you know by the name of Lee Cadenhead came down to our church. And Kristen and I did not want to go on deputation. We really struggled with the idea of deputation. We struggled with the idea of deputation because I don't ask anybody for anything. I'm not going to come to your church and ask you for money. I'm not going to go from church to church and ask for money. And so we really struggled with this idea. And we're really trying to figure out any way in the world we can get around this. And, and so Brother Lee came down and we were telling, we were all excited, telling him about what was going on in Uganda. And he said, you need to come to my missions conference. He was still a pastor in Bruton at that time. And uh, he said, come to my missions conference and just, just watch, just, just come and observe and just see what's going on. Now at that missions conference, there was a young man named Heath Fusner there. You may have heard of him. And that was the first time we met Ron Ralph and just really fell in love with some people we didn't even know existed. And, and got to know and, and care for some people and involved and helped by, by you, you get in your church and you start to think that you're the only ones left in the world, that, that you know, that, that everybody's gone completely reprobate and they're all caving in on us. <laughs> and then you find out God actually has a number of men all over the places faithfully serving him. And it's, it, was, it was a wonderful blessing. So Brother Lee, we were supposed to come and watch and he ended up making us part of the entire missions program. He treated us as though we were missionaries there to present our ministry. Matter of fact, a lot of people that saw us then are like, man, hadn't you been on deputation a long time? <laughs> we weren't on deputation. This, this was just a, a concept in our minds that we were trying to figure out. And that greatly helped us. It, it, it completely changed our attitude about deputation and really helped us to plan and to form and to, and to start molding what would be our time on deputation. We started full-time deputation February 15th, 2019. As of last month, we have raised 81% of our support. Amen. After six months on deputation, we, we, we have a completely unorthodox approach to, to deputation and the way that we approach churches. They, they know when I approach them what my intent is. I don't ask for anything. Either God's going to help us do this, and we're going to do it faithfully according to the will of God, or... We're going to go back to Deland, and I'll go back to preaching on the street and go back to preaching in the rescue mission and go back to preaching in the prison. <laughs> That'll be all right. But God has, praise the Lord, seen fit to greatly help us and, and has greatly blessed us. And now through all this, we've had more and more opportunity open up to us. We're going to work in the Sese Islands, which is, which is certainly a wonderful opportunity. And that's really what captivated us about Uganda. 
<clears throat> Brother Keith has offered for us to come and work with him. And so uh, he, he has planted 10 churches. He has a Bible school. He has a radio station. He's, I mean, he, he's doing the work of about 15 men by himself and needs some help. He's been praying for, for, for a good 20 of his 25 years that God would send someone to be a help and a blessing to him. And so we, we really want to go. We're, we're at least going to spend two or three years with him and see if we're a good fit for that role with him. And if so, then we'll, we'll add that to the list of things that need to be faithfully done. And then not only, not only that, but in January 2018, Rwanda, which is on the southern border of Uganda, kicked out the only man in the country that claimed to be a missionary. And they went on to shut down around 6,000 churches in the country. And it wasn't exclusive to Christianity. It was religion, any, any religion that didn't meet very high unorthodox standards for Africa as far as building and, and organization. And, and, and I mean, that, Rwanda is a very unique place in Africa. And so they shut all these religious organizations down. And you can't live in Rwanda right now as a missionary. It's, it's not, a, not an opportunity, not, a, not available to you. Now, you can go there for 90 days on a visitor's visa and you can do whatever you want while you're there. But you can't stay there as a missionary. And we, as we have looked into this and opportunities, you know, to, to go and minister there, uh, right across that southern border have been open to us. We, we really, really want to spend some time in Rwanda and, and will spend some time in Rwanda. I don't know yet how much of that is going to take up our time and, and how much we can dedicate to that. I would, like, uh, I would like to spend about three months out of the year there working with the Christians that are already there and just set up maybe a three-month Bible school or something along those lines. It, Rwanda is, is an incredible place. In, in 1994, we had the Rwandan genocide where one million people were slaughtered in 100 days with machetes. And the man that, there was, a, there was a man in southern Uganda that was a refugee there named Paul Kagame who led a rebel army from Uganda into Rwanda and put down the government that was killing everyone while the UN stood and watched. <laughs> Thanks to William J. Clinton. But that, that's, a, that's another, yeah. I don't have time for that. So... Yeah. Um, he went in and he put that government down and under his leadership Rwanda has become the safest, most secure most prosperous country in all of Africa they've modeled themselves after Singapore and they're they're called the Singapore of Africa and he wants to be a secular country because during the genocide as the UN got between the two sides that were fighting and and basically held off and allowed the slaughter to just continue until Paul Kagame said "All right, get out of my way, I'm done we're putting it down. The Roman Catholic Church was there and was complicit in the murders. They would lure Rwandans into their church building and then they would, promising them safety, and then they would call the killing squads and they'd come in and kill everybody in that building. They would drill holes in the walls and put, put, put guns in and just fire on people inside. And then they did other things that really wouldn't be appropriate to talk about from here. It was, a, it was horrendous. Because of that, he has no use for religion whatsoever, anything that resembles it, including us. And so we're about a two-hour drive north of there or about a 20-minute flight to Kigali. And we would love to spend some time in that country helping those people, strengthening those churches. So we have a lot of work to do. And I often tell people that it's, it's wonderful to be here. And I, here, it, it really is wonderful to be here. This is, this is a church we hold in very high regard and are very excited to be here. And it, it is a great honor to me to be able to stand here this morning and, and have this much time to tell you what the Lord's done in my life. But I'd rather be standing in front of Africans this morning. I'd rather be in Uganda. So pray for us. Thank you for this time. And Brother Ron, thank you for being so kind and so good to us.